1: Um, just mic drop already, I don't even started. So, hey, welcome, thanks for coming, welcome to RUF as I just continue to fiddle with this, mu- this music stand, which is what I do. Um, my name is Sid Druin, I'm the campus minister for RUF, Reform University Fellowship is what that stands for, I'm really glad you're here. Um, I Also, before I kind of get into what RUF is, I wanted to take a second and just introduce our interns. I know this is on the spot, but Maddie and Ruben, okay? Um, basically, um, I'm asking so that you can ask us to coffee and lunch if you'd like. So, uh, I know, so, so charitable. Um, we would love to get coffee or lunch with you if you're interested. Um, I'm sure there's other students here who would also love to get coffee and lunch with you too. Uh, that's part of what we do in the culture of our UF is get to know people on an individual basis, and get to know their story. And so I just wanted to say that at the beginning of the semester, I'm really glad that you're all here. Um, Okay, so what is RUF? RUF is a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve the campus and you all, wherever you are, and whoever you are. Um, And that really means that RUF isn't for one kind of person. We hope to be for every kind of person. That means regardless of your personal background, regardless of your scene on campus, Uh, Wherever you'd self-identify, even where you'd self-identify with Jesus and Christianity, we want you to feel welcomed here, and we hope that you do. Um, So whether you call yourself convinced or unconvinced, uh, a believer or spiritual skeptic, or somewhere in between those categories, somewhere none of the above or all around them, doesn't really matter that much to to us in terms of welcoming you, and we're so excited that you're here. Okay. Also, um, I just wanted to say thanks to anyone who's new for coming taking the risk and taking the time. Uh, It really means a lot to us and we uh, hope you enjoy yourselves and kind of at least get to see what we're all about. Uh, Especially now that I have a cold, this is really (coughs) gorgeous. So, um, there's rumors about a flu sermon from last uh, semester so we'll see if I can do the cold sermon. Okay, so anyway, this semester in large group, uh, which is number two, we started a little week later. Uh, What we're doing right now, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, Um, we just took Last week to introduce it, the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon or a speech that Jesus gave that's contained in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Uh, These chapters are likely the most well-known and most often quoted section in the Bible. Um, Recently overtook John chapter 3, more on that some other time. Okay, the Sermon on the Mount is often also likely, uh, I would just say this, the most famous speech by the most famous person in world history, Jesus, in the most famous book in the world, which is the Bible. So aside from the Sermon on the Mount's sort of credentials, like world historical, worldwide credentials, um, I'd like to remind you what I said last week. I think the Sermon on the Mount is essential Christian reading. Every culture and every generation, when they want to reexamine or want to examine from afar what Christianity is, turns to this section of scripture. And that's kind of why we're looking at it together. Um, But look, if you've been there, done that, Christian, or you're maybe just exploring Christianity, who Jesus is, what Christian ministries like RUF are actually like, um, no matter where you are with all those things, we actually think, I actually think that we all share the way, kind of assumptively, that we approach a text like this. Okay, we see the Sermon on the Mount as two more chapters of good advice that we should really just follow. Okay, that's that's how we see it. But if Jesus' words to us are just mere self-improvement, on a, like another self-improvement list to add to the pile that's already stacking up in week two of Davidson, okay, we will either foolishly think that we've got this and we can handle it and we will judge other people as worse than us as human beings, or we will take Jesus' commands seriously. We will try them. We will miserably fail at them. And then we will ping-pong back and forth between get-yourself-together speeches in the halftime locker room of our soul, or we will quietly quit it all. That's kind of what we'll do back and forth. So instead, I'd actually invite us, let's begin to read the Sermon on the Mount as an invitation. Jesus is showing us what it looks like to live intentionally, to live intentionally with him and to live intentionally in this world. Jesus is asking us to see the world and see our lives in a new way, to see them with spiritual imagination. And really, that's what the title of the series is going to be. I'm calling it Beyond Good Advice, colon, subtitle, Seeing Our Lives with Spiritual Imagination, or just, I know, just Beyond Good Advice. I know, it kills me not to have the subtitle, but we'll just do it, Beyond Good Advice. Okay, so... Before we kind of look at the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, I just want to take a second and pray. Would you pray with me and for us in our time together? Father, thank you for um, the opportunity to to be with these students. Um, It's certainly uh, a weird privilege to to stand up and talk in front of people, um, and you know that uh, intimately. (laughs) We're studying, uh, I guess you sat down, but it's a similar idea. I pray that you would just be with uh, my heart and with their hearts, that you'd make us receptive to you, uh, that Jesus, um, you would meet us where we are, and maybe that's in a place of of real skepticism, and maybe that's in a place of real trust. Uh, You know what we need before we know we need it. And I pray that you would um, choose this time, uh, use this time to meet us. And I pray that we would not leave this room the same, that we would see you, Jesus, more believable and more beautiful to the eyes of our hearts and that um, you would use this time um, to work something uh, good and permanent and lasting inside of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so about two weeks ago, I broke a promise to myself. Uh, Who who hasn't done this yet? News resolutions, that's what we do, right? New York Times columnist... Public intellectual at large, David Brooks, came and spoke on campus, and there had been a vow I had made to myself to never miss things like that, and I missed hearing him in the Duke Performance Hall. Totally broke my own promise to myself. Tragic, I know, I know. But you know what's great is technology has rescued us once again, and I have been marinating in, watching, listening over and over again, rewinding, listening to his speech that he gave about two weeks ago. Um, for those of you who did not catch it or did catch it, and it's been a while, you've gone through a lot of classes since then and read about 100 pages in each subject by then, um, basically David Brooks gave a speech called Trump and Afterwards, the Next American Culture. And actually, if you, I think, a careful listen to his speech, he's, the speech is really just a meditation on the current crisis of purpose going on. There's a crisis of purpose that he has identified and many different people and many different social groups, we're all asking for wisdom and rootedness and culturally, we tell these people and ourselves, keep your options open, the future is unlimited, look inside yourself. And according to Brooks, this advice is unhelpful if not actually untrue, okay? So at the end of the speech, David Brooks gestures towards this idea of choosing and executing commitments. And, um, and he kind of finds uh, these committed lives reflected in what he calls incandescent personalities, incandescent personalities. And he references uh, a friend's sister, Ruthie Dreyer, uh, who lives in Northern Louisiana. But I would actually, when I think about finding and living with an incandescent personality, It makes me think of my friend, Phil, and actually a friend of a friend, his friend, Mike. Okay, (laughs) so not Phil, but Mike. Uh, So in Phil's words, Mike was unlike any other man I have ever encountered. To be honest, I didn't always enjoy being with him. Sometimes Mike scared me. There were times when he intimidated me. I often felt an an awkward and restless dis-ease when we were together. He'd recognize me as an imposter. Mike saw the meaning hidden behind the image I often presented, and he called my bluff. Mike's effect on me was like a defibrillator on, all, on an all-but-dead heart. Mike was convinced that anything he held back from Jesus would end up hurting him, and for that reason, he appeared fearless and free to tell Jesus everything. There was not any editing in his relationship with Jesus. Okay. There was also rarely any editing in Mike's relationship with other people like Phil, um, which is what makes him so fun. Uh, they met sharing a room together at a conference. The first morning, Phil got up early and did the conference thing. Uh, went and got breakfast, came back, and uh, his roommate, who he had just met the night before, was half naked, sitting on his side of his bed um, with his hair a wild mess and holding his head in his hands and groaning. In that state, Mike looks up Squints up at Phil and they begins their first real conversation this way. You know, I've been told it takes a crook to catch a crook, and I've already got you pegged. You and I are much more alike than it appears, Phil. The only difference is I've quit trying to look like my life's all put together, but you're still desperately trying. You gotta imagine this in a bunk bed scenario. It's just amazing. Okay? Phil, I am looking forward to knowing the real you. First encounter. <laughs> One of the more famous first speeches in history. Okay. So began a friendship where Mike made Phil feel incredibly uncomfortable and incredibly alive at every turn. Um, From inviting Phil to a staged uh, confession of Mike's Mike's fake attempt to steal silverware from a restaurant, he went back into the restaurant lobby, pretended like he had stolen all the silverware, and threw it out of his sleeves and it was pile on the ground to Phil's chagrin and embarrassment and reddening. And Mike became his sort of self and self-pronounced bouncer of his friend group. And so every time Phil would not show up to something, uh, they had a kind of annual meeting they called the Notorious Sinners. Um, and every time every time Phil wouldn't show up, Mike Mike would call him on the phone and interrogate him about his reasons <laughs> for for a long period of time and call him out on multiple sins that were mostly right. Um so anyway, look, when I hear these stories, honestly, like even telling stories about people like Mike, about like radiantly alive people, and I think we all kind of know radiant alive people, um, and then like maybe trying to live more like them, I just feel like really tired and really confused and really guilty. <laughs> is that fair? Can I say that? Okay. Like in is Mike's purpose supposed to be my purpose? Like, am I supposed to be like just crazy and say things like that in bunk beds? Right? Like, am I supposed to be more like Phil? Like just, you know, firmly and comfortably riding shotgun on someone's fully alive, incandescent life? Or is like finding purpose or meaning supposed to feel so forced, like some sort of of out-of-personality or out-of-body experience? So like, does it supposed to feel so outside of who I am? Right? In our passage tonight, Jesus repeats the Greek word makarios nine different times. The English Standard Version that we're reading together translates this, this word, blessed. But it also often is translated happy or happiness. Okay, And all of these translations of makarios suggest that Jesus is getting at something life-defining. Something like that purpose or meaning that David Brooks and people like Mike point towards. Okay. In Jesus' introduction, this thematic overture to the symphony of the Sermon on the Mount, I want to suggest that in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, Jesus is answering three fundamental questions about human purpose, human meaning, human significance. Okay, And that's where he's why he's starting every statement with blessed or happiness. First, this is the first question. What are we aiming at? Second, how do we get there? You know, how do we get to where we're aiming? Then, third, what should we expect as we get to where we're aiming at? And those are, by the way, on your handout. We're using those three questions the same as the outline that we're going to work through tonight together um, as we kind of study what Jesus says about the purpose or direction of, um, at, at play here. So again, first, we're going to look broadly at verses 3 through 12. And we're going to ask, what are we aiming at? What's your purpose? Okay. Second, we're going to look at verses 3 through 9, and we're going to ask, how do we get there? How do we get to your purpose? How do I get to my purpose? How do you get to your purpose? And third and finally, in verses 10 through 12, we're going to to ask, what should we expect as we get to where we're aiming? What what should happen to us? What can we expect to happen to us as we start to live our lives on purpose, as you start to be yourself on purpose? Okay? So we're going to begin a little differently than usual, and we're going to look simultaneously, kind of very wide scope, at verses three through twelve. But then we're really going to narrowly, at the same time, at just really one word that I've kind of been belaboring already, which is that weighty word "makarios," meaning blessed or happy. Okay. So let's look there. Ready? Okay. So verses three through twelve. If you look there, uh, this is commonly called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes just means the blessed ones, blessings. Okay, another ancient dead language that, yes, again, I did study. I have three dead languages under my belt. Um, so, gotta use them at all possible costs. Um, so, the Beatitudes. Um, and because, as I mentioned before, the Greek word makarios is opportunistically blessed, that's why you get the word Beatitudes, okay? But as we know, culturally, the word blessed is rarely used by itself, right? Very few people use the word blessed by itself. It's usually in the phrase being blessed. Or I am blessed, or hashtag blessed. Right? Isn't that fair? Okay, this is, listen to the way that Kate Bowler puts it in an article a year or so ago. When Americans boast on Twitter about how well they're doing on Thanksgiving, hashtag blessed is the standard hashtag. It's the humble brag of the stars. Hashtag blessed is the only caption suitable for vivid images of alpine vacations and family yachting in barely their bikinis. It says, I totally get it. I'm down to earth to know that this is crazy. But it, all, it also says, God gave this to me, adorable shrug. Don't blame me, I'm blessed. <laughs> <laughs> as confusing as that word is, okay? As confusing as that moment was. Um, <laughs> the word blessed is, is, uh, is that, it can be still confusing in our cultural moment. The word happiness may actually be even more confusing in our cultural moment. Okay. After all, there is so much pressure to be happy, or at least to say you're happy, or to look happy to the right people at the right time, which is pretty much everybody. Okay. I'm gonna sidestep another leap into the social media Instagram take on happiness. I could do that all day too. And I'm gonna also, by the way, this is very hard for me, I'm gonna sidestep the Oxford English Dictionary tour of how happy, the word happy, comes from the word happen. And I'm gonna instead say this way, um, ha- the idea of blessedness and the idea of happiness are circumstance deep. Our cultural understanding of happiness is circumstance deep. Okay, here's how happiness works for me and probably for you. Okay, if things outside of me are working out the way I plan them to go, if like I avoid pain and get more pleasure, if the internet is streaming and my iPhone has data available for the month, then I'm happy. <laughs> Okay, that's really it. Okay, but obviously the problem with pursuing happiness or the blessed life at all costs is that it expires so quickly. Right, my happiness typically spoils within 24 hours. That's the expiration date. It does not last long. Okay, you're done with finals. Yes, Gatorade bath, emotional moment. Okay, people, you're up on metaphorical shoulders. Uh, the stadium is cheering. Right, what happens next? Five minutes later, you're at a loss, okay? Or your real friends aren't texting you back, and you've gone through all the episode of Friends on Netflix. Oh, no. What do I do? Ah, uh, there goes the happiness. Okay, so those are a couple of examples. And then there's always, like, the less trivial, less sort of jokey, like, when real suffering comes and stays for a long, long time, not just for 24 hours. Then happiness seems to disappear altogether, right? but Jesus uses the word translated happiness, so that's why I've been really using makarios a lot um, because he, tr- he uses that word differently than we expect okay? a, friend calls, a friend of mine calls Jesus' use of blessedness or happiness counterintuitive okay? um, and he, use, he likens it to a Chinese finger trap I'm sure there are more politically correct ways to say that at this point and I really apologize Pretty much when I opened my mouth about 15 minutes ago because I'm a white male and older, I pretty much to offend a lot of people and I'm sorry. And I'm gonna to continue to offend you with the Chinese finger trap. If you know a politically correct version of that, just shout it out and I'll go with it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, don't, I can't believe we're still calling it that, I don't know. Anyway, so. Um, anyway, that's me just on a, on a, on a psychological couch. Um, <laughs> that's a lot, I'm sorry. Deep breath, there goes our happiness. Um, but do you all know what a Chinese finger trap is? Okay. So it's like this woven cylinder usually made of some pliable plant material, like bamboo, and then you stick your fingers in each side just in case no one knows what this is. And it's like when you're five and you can't get your fingers out of your thumbs out, right? And you think you just have to pull them harder. That's like the classic gimmick, right? You're like, oh, I'm just going to get this, and then the thing strains, and it tightens and clamps down, you lose circulation, you almost lose the numb of your finger. Um, and then you have to do this totally counterintuitive thing where you have to jam them inward, like as if they're going to get more stuck. And then all of a sudden they release. Okay, And your fingers are safely your own again. Okay. My friend Britton Wood compares Jesus' teaching on happiness, like what true happiness is, how to, what getting happiness looks like, uh, to a Chinese finger trap. It's the opposite of what we think should work okay like does not it's totally counterintuitive like and this is his summary happiness is getting radically honest about our neediness okay showing yourself and God your worst instead of leading with your best and hiding your worst that does not seem like a recipe for happiness and then out of that self-honesty we get to serve others dream for others and not just for ourselves. We get to be there for others and do for others instead of assuming that people should be there for me and do what I want them to do, which is the source of every roommate conflict in the history of the world. Okay? That's what the opposite is. That's the opposite of happiness in our minds, and that's what Jesus is proposing in a nutshell. Okay? More radical self-honesty with God before God and thinking more of other people and preferring them with others. Okay, but like, look, even if you buy these kind of radical ideas, like, it's about personal neediness, it's about desiring the good of other people, even if you grant that may well be where blessedness lies, how do we get there? Like, how do we get there, right? After all, like, this is really a lot of willpower. It takes a lot of willpower to be self-honest like that and other-centered like that. It seems much harder than telling your brain to push in instead of pull out, Right? And that brings us, of course, to point number two, right? How do we get our purpose to where we're aiming at? Like, how do we get there? How do we get to where we want to be? And we're gonna look at verses three through nine in particular, and here's the advantage of tackling all the Beatitudes all at once in one sermon shot, as opposed to doing a small group where I go one Beatitude at a time through it, which I also do, okay? We get to see, like, the internal logic, big picture style, okay? So this is really interesting. There's an internal logic to the the Beatitudes. The first four Beatitudes, from poor in spirit to hunger and thirst for righteousness, all refer to needs. They all refer to needs that are passive, mostly inwardly focused, and directed towards God. Okay? Then the second four Beatitudes, from blessed are the meek, all the way to... um, Sorry, blessed are the merciful all the way to blessed are the persecuted. They all refer to movements that are active, outward focused, and directed towards others. Does that make sense? They're kind of, they're different, different ideas, different structures, different pushes, okay? And that, there's this pivot between the two. And the pivot happens at the very end, uh, the, very, the fourth beatitude in verse 6, we pivot from people in need to people in service. We pivot from who we are not to who we are. And we pivot by hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And that hunger and thirst being satisfied by God. That God gives us an internal satisfaction that leads to a rattle, radical external change. Does that make sense? That's the pivot. So briefly, verses 3 through 5 highlight the need to admit our spiritually needy condition, right? We are poor in spirit. We're broken. We're humbled. We're spiritually broke before God. That's, we mourn. We're broken hearted over the ways we hurt others and others hurt us and the way this world just works. We're meek. We're powerless. We're dependent on God for any kind of special treatment, for any kind of rights. Any right is his gift, right? It's, just, it's hard et- internal work to get this honest about our inabilities, to not hide our weaknesses and flaws from God, let alone from ourselves. Okay, that's really difficult. Uh, I love the way that this writer, um, poet Robert Bly puts it. He talks about how like we all kind of have this emotional black, heavy-duty, like hefty, long bag that we carry around with us. Okay. Um, and from an early age, we have learned to compartmentalize ourselves, right? So we, like a facial feature draws extra attention, or a quickly criticized interest, or something that we're laughed at that we do, or some embarrassing delight that we have, or a questionable relationship, and we shove it as quick as we can in the back. We want nothing to do with that. We will not present that to the watching world ever again. Okay. And so we take these parts of ourselves that we've shoved in this deep, dark, metaphorical bag that's hidden from the light of day, but growing heavier and bigger all the time as we shove more and more stuff in it, right? And the Beatitudes of verses 3 through 5 are inviting us to pull all of this stuff out of the bag, to open up the cinch ties, to pull out the embarrassing, the hurtful, and the hurting parts of ourselves, out of that bag and to confess them to God. And the question becomes, will we? And here's what we have to believe. Will we, in the words of Brennan Manning, believe that Jesus loves us as we are, not as we should be? Because that's the only thing that we're actually going to open that bag and take out. Will Jesus love us as we are, not as we should be? Why? Because none of us is the person we should be. And this is why verse 6 is such the pivot, right? We do all this hard internal work, assuming we do that, assuming we get honest with ourselves and with God. We immediately at that moment, just beginning, start to internally hunger and thirst for righteousness, for a right standing, for a sense of bulletproofness. You see, after this ruthless self-inventory, I know I need a righteousness, a spiritual wealth, a comfort, a gentle and wise strength outside of my very own mixed best and worst person, right? I can't produce it on my own. I hunger and thirst to be fully alive, to be some sort of incandescent personality, but I know I can't. I can't produce that blessed righteousness on my own. So while the Beatitudes do describe people like me and many of you as blessed, right? The blessed one in whom we are blessed Is spiritually rich gentle and strong and his name is Jesus okay he is the most incandescent most fully alive most committed person who ever lived on this planet and he and not you and not me he is the primary subject of the Beatitudes we are stepping into his story he is the hero of heroes okay listen to the way this works okay He's the primary subject, right? We are blessed with spiritual richness because he became spiritually poor for us. We are blessed with comfort because he mourned weeping in the noonday dark of that first Good Friday. We are blessed with gentle strength because he became weak unto death for us. Jesus has given us the kingdom of heaven. The earth is our inheritance because he paid for it with his blood and it was willed to us at his death on the cross. And so it goes for all the selfless ways we're called to act outside of ourselves, right? We desire other people's dreams or serve others or to be there for them and not, there, not them for us. How do we do that? Jesus has blessed our spiritual poverty with the gift of mercy, verse 7. He deserved, but he didn't get at the hands of Pontius Pilate and the Jewish Religious Council, right? Right? Jesus has blessed our mourning over ourselves with the gift of pure, that is undivided, single-minded seeing of God, verse 8. Because Jesus lost sight of the Father on the cross. Jesus has blessed our meekness by giving us peace, verse 9, at the cost of the world's and even God the Father's anger poured out on him just outside Jerusalem. You see, God satisfies our hunger and our thirst for righteousness by giving us the spirit of the righteous one, Jesus, in order to live passively, to live actively, to live inwardly, to live outwardly just like God did. Jesus' righteousness is the motive and the power for radical self-honesty. Because in Jesus, we know God will cherish us even at our worst. Jesus' righteousness is the motive and the power for radical other-centeredness because Jesus desires our dreams. He serves us. He's there for us when we run and hide yet again. At its very essence, Christianity isn't just one more thing to do. Christianity isn't just one more thing to be ashamed of. At its essence, Christianity is a historical set of facts outside of us, right? Your righteousness, Jesus Christ, sits resurrected in heaven next to his Father. Your righteousness is there, outside of you. Therefore, our acceptance, our incandescence, our purpose does not stand or fall on our good behavior. Or it doesn't stand or fall based on our best or worst foot forward. Right? Or how we feel about ourselves and how we're doing. Jesus is my righteousness, and that righteousness I have and do hunger for and thirst for, and it is unchangeably secured for me in heaven. Boom. Done. Okay? That's giant, big, deep breaths. We've got to keep moving. Okay? So, look, commentator Dale Bruner summarizes the internal logic of the Beatitudes by writing that God picks us up. When we're laying face down on the ground in the needing beatitudes, verses three through six, okay? And then God sends us out to pick up others likewise in the helping beatitudes in verses seven through nine. Okay, and in the hurting beatitudes, verses ten through twelve, we see how we ended up face down to begin with. Okay, why were we there to begin with? In our outline, verses ten through twelve, we're gonna show us what to expect as we get there. As we start to live our lives on purpose, what should we expect? Okay, This is really hard. To, it was really hard to imagine probably for a lot of you that happiness is beyond our circumstances. Okay, that might have been easier. But then it starts to become like, okay, so happiness is confessing our neediness and serving other people however they, they need to be served. Eh, okay. Perhaps the hardest thing for our spiritual imagination is to picture that all of this is going to lead to persecution. That not, we're not going to get society's applause for these things but instead we're gonna get heckled and name called and worse, okay? Look, I, I love the, I don't love, but I, there is a thing called the campaign trail um, and there is the classroom speech where people talk about you know, humble caring as being important and the way forward, but our present cultural moment has that side of itself but it also has a very different definition of happiness that it's operational, okay? So if you flip the screen, the coding looks more like this. If we dig dig deep down enough inside of ourselves or other people, goals are clear. And this is just me too. I'm struggling with this all the time. We prefer culturally wealth over over poverty. Duh. (laughs) Okay, so we would rather whether it's material or spiritual, we'd rather have more than less, right? We want carefree, pain-free lives over mourning. Slightly, we would rather someone be slightly cocky and sure of themselves than meek. I mean, who's gonna follow the CEOs? like, I'm not so sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah. okay. We want the person that's, we wanna be full and fed, not hungry or thirsty. We want you do you over promoting mercy and peace. We want self-preservation over purity of heart. We want winning friends and influencing people, maybe with a little bit of flattery, over persecution and getting reviled. Just, I feel like that's kind of common sense. And a lot of these values in and of themselves aren't bad. But just ask Fyodor Dostoevsky what happens when you try to live the Beatitudes in the modern world. He knows from his own life, but also he wrote this incredible book called The Idiot, where he made a man live all of these things out in the Russian high society, and he gets completely relegated and persecuted and reviled. And that's why he's called The Idiot, okay? He made a novel about the Beatitudes called The Idiot. So in other words, telling people to push in and not pull out for happiness leads to pushback. Okay, Might have been the most clever line of the night. I'm done. Let's pray. Okay, so it's, it's <laughs> it is threatening to tell people that the way down is the way up. It just is. And it's aggravating that what feels right side up might actually be, right, might be upside down. So I'm going to illustrate this with a closing story, and then I'm done. Okay, I promise and I just want you to feel the tension of how uneasy and relieving the purpose of the Beatitudes feels uneasy and relieving and I'm gonna to return to my friend Phil and his friend Mike okay? several years ago Mike's died suddenly and tragically in an October in an automobile accident Phil attended the funeral in California did some grieve the loss of his friend tried to move on but that summer, almost a year later, Phil began to experience bouts of extreme sadness and a recurring nightmare he had never had before. The dream went like this, every time it was the same. Phil was on a shoreline surrounded by a tightly packed group of people. It felt like the entire world was there, every kind of person was there. Okay? The weather was dark and damp and cold and gray and suddenly a booming voice announced from who knows where that all the people there would have to begin to swim for a shore that was out of sight in a matter of minutes. And he just, talking about the dream, like there's these shouts of protest, like anxious questions, desperate pleas, to no avail. The crowd, including Phil, feels helpless and terrified and gets more and more so. And then some people are fearing, some people are confident, they can make the swim, but regardless, in a matter of minutes, they're all in the water. And it's just like it's a triathlon kind of feeling, right? All on top of one another, flailing arms, flailing legs, surrounded on every side by old and young and and women and men and strong and weak, kicking and flailing, right? And it's this most awful, horrifying feeling because they're swimming to nowhere. And he swims hour after hour in the dream. More and more fellow swimmers drown over time. And he can no longer think help to think that he's gonna actually make it anymore. He can't help he can't think of helping the other swimmers. He's too tired. And he can't help he can't think of like actually keeping himself afloat for much longer. He thinks I'm gonna die. It's just a matter of when and how and I'm gonna go under. And he starts picturing himself underneath the flailing arms and legs and clawing limbs. And he's still alive somehow, but he's like complete hope. And all of a sudden, Phil hears this like, faint noise off to the side of this giant mass of humanity. Okay? And on the side, well beyond the crowd, he can faintly hear a soft, jolly whistling <laughs> and the sounds of laughter. And he thinks it like, must be some sort of like sea version of a mirage, like some hallucinization or whatever. And, but Phil kind of gets interested. He's, he's real still, and he starts to swim towards it with the rest of what he's got. He thinks it's better than this. And so he swims towards the whistling and the laughing. And over the dark gray, rising and falling waves, Phil sees something on the horizon. And it gets bigger and bigger, and he starts to realize what it is. It's a rainbow-colored umbrella hat. (laughs) Do you know what those are? Like the circular plastic thing and like just the paneling, the plastic paneling. Okay. Red, yellow, blue, et cetera. Okay. And he gets closer. As he gets closer, Phil realizes that it's his friend Mike in an umbrella hat. (laughs) Okay? This, is a true, this is a true dream. Mike is floating on his back, whistling and batting a beach ball back and forth with other people. Okay, Off to the side of a mass of humanity furiously swimming for their lives. And Phil's eyes meet Mike's, and Mike immediately stops grinning, stops whistling, looks sad, and in disbelief shakes his head and says, Dude, what are you doing? And Phil, in anger and confusion, yells, What do you think I'm doing? I'm trying to save my life. What are you doing? And Mike looks at Phil with compassion and says, Brother, don't you get it? Don't you get it? Phil, can't you understand? There's no way for you to make it. None of these people can make it. No one can make it. And Phil shouts back in frustration, So Mike, what's the point? Just give up? Is that what you expect me to do since I'm going to die anyway? I'm just, I guess you're just going to invite me to your lame, meaningless party. And Mike appears totally unfazed by Phil's outburst, and he peers into Phil, Phil's sweaty, kind of like, wrinkly, pruned face with like this deep tenderness and care. And Mike again speaks to Phil. He says, Phil, you don't have to die. You don't have to strive to achieve what's impossibly beyond your reach. Don't you understand? All you have to do is wait. He said he's coming to get us. I know he'll keep his promise. Jesus is coming to get us. That's the end of the dream. Isn't that dream... Intensely frustrating and beautiful somehow. (laughs) Whistling in an umbrella hat in the middle of a storming ocean. Is that happiness? What is that? Is that purpose? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words to us. Thank you for the ways that you use people's stories and the ways that you use your words to press them upon ourselves. And I pray that you um, would be with us um, whether we feel like we're in a dark, storming ocean swimming to nowhere or not. And I pray that you would be faithful and kind to us no matter where we are. And I pray that you'd reach out because we could use it. We could use some reassurance. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.